to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. When you think of the great cities of the Civil War era, you think of Washington, D.C., Richmond, perhaps Atlanta, Charleston. But what about the fourth biggest city in the Western world? No battle was fought there, but it contributed enormously to the Union war effort. We'll find out how when we talk to the author of Philadelphia and the Civil War, Arsenal of the Union, written by Anthony Wosky, our guest tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. Dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, where we usually come from, but not always. And here on the ECU campus, we are not speaking for ECU or its athletic director, its sports programs, its academic programs, anything else, just myself and our guests likewise. I'm sure we'll speak only for himself tonight, as we always do. Well, it's the uh, almost the last show of the season, the last Wednesday in November 2017, as we talk tonight. Uh, already dark out, the clocks have changed for the year, and uh, it, it's it's pitch dark, so it's evening, not afternoon, as we talk about the Civil War this evening. Uh, usually I start out with some local college sports talk or academic talk. Tonight, actual news, this showed up literally within the last uh, 10 minutes on my screen, that uh, ECU's basketball coach is out. Uh, Jeff Lebo has resigned after enough years to lose 100 and some games, 120. It was about 500 over his career here. Uh, but the team started out losing some of their non-conference games against local high schools and 
random five guys on the street kind of teams, and, and that was not a good sign for the coming regular season, so they, they quit. Uh, so, so the coach is out. Uh, whether he chose to resign, we don't know, but, but time for a new look in ECU basketball. And this is good because it takes one's mind off of ECU football, uh, which was just devastatingly bad this past weekend, uh, so incredibly bad. It's hard to tell which is more painful, uh, that or my original team, uh, Michigan Wolverines, who were just bad enough not to win against Ohio State for the umpteenth time in a row. Uh, which one hurts more? Well, well, for me, Michigan does because they, sh- they should have won that game. Uh, ECU giving up 70. It's hard to tell which team will give up more points, the football or the basketball team now. Uh, but... That's why I'm, I don't come here for the sports. Let's talk uh, academics, Civil War in particular. Uh, we're approaching the end of the semester here in fall 2017. Tomorrow will be the last class of the last regular classroom meeting of the, the season for, uh, for the classes I'm teaching, one of which is the U.S. History Survey, History 1051, American History since 1877. And we were talking last time about the 1990s and the early 2000s. We'll finish up there. And I find that makes me feel almost as old as what happened a few weeks ago. I mentioned on the show getting a senior discount at the donuts shop uh, for the first time. Teaching about the 2000s as history uh, to students who are not old enough to remember 9-11 as, as, a, as their own memory uh, is truly a daunting experience. Uh, much more comfortable to teach about the 1860s, which uh, we'll also be doing tomorrow. In some ways, the most interesting class meeting of the year, the students are each asked to bring with them a piece of the Civil War, some artifact or uh, experience that they have had connecting directly to the war. And it turns out very many of them, all of them in some way, have something to talk about it, whether they have a uh, the portrait on the wall at home or a musket over the fireplace or a pension records from an ancestor or just a story of visiting a battlefield when they were little, piquing their interest. Uh, everybody's got something, and it's always interesting to hear what they are. Some of them are, are Fascinating. Possibly my favorite was the student who said, well, uh, my my great-great-great-granddaddy killed Stonewall Jackson. And that got everybody's attention. And his father had been in the regiment at Chancellorsville that fired the volley that mortally wounded Jackson, and his own ancestor was, was sure he was the one who had done it, uh, though no one, of course, could tell. So that's, that's where we're going in school. Uh, here at... Civil War Talk Radio, we're going ahead with one more show this uh, this season. This was winter of 2017. Next week, Sam Elliott will be here to talk about John C. Brown of Tennessee, rebel, redeemer, and railroader. We'll learn who John C. Brown was and what he did. We'll take the winter hiatus, give some final exams, grade some papers, break some hearts, make some careers successful and uh, take the winter holiday off, line up some new shows. But we'll be back January 10th, 2018 with Terry Alford, author of Fortune's Fool, A Life of John Wilkes Booth. 
and uh, Terry Alford has been suggested as a guest on the show for, for a number of years and finally managed to get that coordinated, so I'm looking forward to talking with him. On January 17th, uh, Charles Calhoun joins us with a new biography of uh, Ulysses S. Grant, or actually the Grant presidency. Not, not, uh, it's not a military book or a full biography, but a book on the Grant presidency. The misfortune to come out at the same time as a very popular uh, writer about, civil, about historical topics is, is one of those things that you just can't control. I'll ask Chuck how he's dealing with that, and uh, we'll compare his book with with others. You can find out about these things, as always, from impedimentsofwar.org, the website that tells you where things are happening. And especially, uh, this is the time of year to visit www.impedimentsofwar.org and do your Christmas shopping for yourself or your Civil War community friends. If you go there, or for that matter, buy anything you want, uh, go to the website, click on one of the book covers there, takes you to Amazon, and you can buy the book from that page. The website gets a few pennies from that, and last year it made made a difference, helped pay for the bandwidth that keeps the website going. If you, once you do that, once you clicked on the book and you're in Amazon, then you can switch over and buy, you know, the snuggy blanket with sleeves or something for uh, somebody else on your gift list that you don't like. And that still will be credited to impediments of war and help out the station, uh, help out the website, help out the show. So please consider working your way to Amazon through impedimentsofwar.org and uh, it's a painless way to support Civil War Talk Radio and, and much appreciated. If you want to score extra karma points, go directly to the donation button on the website and for just one more month, if you donate anything to the show this year, 2017, I will turn around and donate that amount to the Citizens Advocating Memorial Preservation in New York State, people who have saved the Cattaraugus County Memorial and Historical Building, and now they need some funds to help them get grants to get real money and and turn the building around. So people have already donated money, much appreciated. Please continue to do so, and that's where your gifts will go. Well, speaking of buildings from the past, we'll be talking tonight about a city uh, normally known for its revolutionary and colonial historical past, uh, the city of Philadelphia. But as we will find out shortly, it also played a substantial role in the Civil War. Our guest is a professor at Temple University in the city. Uh, his name is Anthony Waski. Uh, professor Waski, are you there? I am, yes, sir. Welcome Looking to the show. Looking forward to speaking with you. Uh, very nice to talk, get to talk to you rather than on the Ethernet. Much better and this way, Epps. <laughs> and it sounds like that you might be of my uh, similar ethnic background. Brukovopovich is a good Polish name, and my name is also a Polish name, and uh, maybe you're from that particular background. Well, it, it, the, uh, it's a Polish spelling of a name that originated in Ukraine. Uh, oh, Ukraine, Okay. Yep. So, like so many of us, the ancestors roamed all around Eastern Europe before they came exactly, to the United yeah. States. Well, a large uh, portion of Western Ukraine belonged to Poland, 
until exactly. World War One and then World War Two. Yeah. Ruth now your back, your background is in European languages. In uh, languages, yes, yes. Uh, uh, tell me a little bit about uh, about what you about your day job, what you what you teach. Uh, well, I'm an associate professor at Temple University. I've been there 18 years. After a 30-year career in public education in a local uh, school district uh, surrounding Philadelphia in the suburbs, uh, and I was a language major, and also I was actually a triple major in college, German, Russian, and history. Mm-hmm. And I was certified uh, in Pennsylvania in, in all of those and, and did eventually teach uh, all of those various subjects. I did uh, attend New York University in New York City, the uh, Violets, and I did obtain my advanced degrees there, master's and PhD. Uh, and I was actually put through school by the United States Army because I was an ROTC student and uh, they funded and uh, I, I had a course of talent for languages and they needed in those days uh, language experts called army linguists. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they uh, gave me the uh, wherewithal and the background and support to uh, to advance my career in in German and, and Ru- in Slavic languages, uh, Czech and Russian, actually. So I did some duty in uh, in, in those days the uh, the border of the Cold War, which was East Germany and West Germany. And uh, then, of course, I did return and did finish my career up in the reserves, but uh, uh, was able to uh, finish my degrees. And then, again, after after retiring <laughs> after thirty years of public education, I was fortunate enough to receive an appointment to Temple University, which is nearby in Philadelphia. Actually, I'm living in Philadelphia right now. I'm sitting in my home in Fishtown, not too far Mm -hmm. from the Delaware River. And I've been there and enjoy very much teaching uh, language classes right now. It's just German, but I'm also a founder, uh, co-founder of the Civil War and uh, and Emancipation uh, Studies Institute at Temple. And we we arrange... uh, studies, uh, research projects, uh, symposia, uh, tours, et cetera, et cetera, in anything that impacts uh, the Civil War, particularly in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania, and also emancipation. So the Underground Railroad, uh, equal rights movement, uh, colored troops, many of whom were trained in a huge camp, the largest of all the camps uh, in the United States, training uh, the so-called colored troops, as they call the African-American troops during the Civil War in uh, Philadelphia called Camp William Penn. Eleven regiments were re- organized and trained there and mustered and sent to the front from Philadelphia. So we had quite an impact uh, on the war effort and also uh, being the largest city of the North, having the largest black population, free black population in the North, the Philadelphia had a huge impact on emancipation. Um, how did you get interested in the Civil War with the background in languages? What, well, what I was, I was a, also a history major in college. Mm-hmm. American history was my specialty. And uh, I, so it's a long story. I don't want to bore you with all the details. But uh, I've always been fascinated by military history and particularly our American Civil War. And, of course, being close to Gettysburg, it's only a two-hour drive away. Uh, I went there as a boy, as a, as a Boy Scout, et cetera, et cetera, and was fascinated, but never knew that I had uh, any ancestral participation. Uh, and then in the 1980s, I went on, on a kind of a genealogy kick 
and was able to find uh, that I indeed did have an ancestor who fought in the Civil War, a great-great-grandfather, uh, who uh, fought in 130th Pennsylvania. It was a nine-month regiment, severely wounded at the sunken road at Antietam, uh, missed, because he mustered out, missed Gettysburg, but then went into the emergency militia and then did return to a volunteer regiment and finished out the war and wounded at Appomattox, so, or actually Peter, the Petersburg campaign. So uh, I do have a direct connection that fascinated me so much that I just wanted to go and find out all I could about him. And so I did all, all the research, all the reading, the primary sources rather than secondary sources, uh, particularly regimental histories, uh, biographies, uh, also uh, uh, memoirs and so on particularly interested me. And I just couldn't get enough. <laughs> I was bitten by the bug, so to speak. But uh, then I started writing, reading, researching. And then I, uh, believe it or not, got interested in reenacting. And I uh. started to doing reenacting. I started out as a private in the ranks. Very fascinating experience. And uh, I, I, was re- I was asked to do speeches or talks, presentations in the local schools of the, of the school district because they, you know, they, do, uh, and they do a lesson on American Civil War, but it's so flat, you know, and it's so... Uh, uh, bland, and maybe they spend a day or two on it at the end of the, the year, and it just doesn't have the impact. And so they would they invite would re- me to come in in period dress, and I would do a first person. I, I, think, I thought, why, why not Why talk about it in the third person, what they did and he did and so on. And so I uh, did a lot of research and found a, a series of letters in an archive, and I took on the persona of that person, that man, and, and so I would go in and actually speak from the first person. Andy, that uh, sounds like I really like wanted a, to know a, what I was doing. Yeah. Outstanding way to uh, to teach students indeed, the first indeed, person. Yeah. It's always it really creates it creates um, kind of a lot of we're going to interrupt. You know, we're gonna have and, to take a and, short break. You know, uh, charisma. I mean, <laughs> you name it. Uh, and I, I really I hear you. Took the model and, from like uh, you know the, the the guys on stage, and I can't think of his name. Uh, who did, Andy, uh, I, I need to interrupt you and, and take a short oh, break now. Our engineer oh, sure. is calling me, so we're going to take a few minutes away. We'll be right back. Talk more okay. with Andy Wosky in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. 
Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Anthony Wosky, author of Philadelphia and the Civil War, Arsenal of the Union, and other uh, writings and uh, presentations on Philadelphia in the war. Uh, we talked in the first section just a bit about the uh, importance of the city and uh, a bit about uh, Andy's background. The temple, uh, by, by good friend and colleague Mike Palmer uh, here at ECU, is a temple. Uh, got his, his degree, his PhD at Temple. He studied with uh, the late Russell Wigley, who many listeners. Russell Wigley, recognize. one of the greats. Yes, I'm, I knew him. Well, uh, unfortunately, he passed away about ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, a great loss to the community. Yes, he was. He's a fine, fine historian, great guy too. And as I look in my around my office, I see a set of the official records of the War of the Rebellion that were discarded from the Temple Library some years ago. Oh my Mike God. Palmer. How well, could that happen? I'm sure they, get, they must have got a new electronic set, but uh, these are pretty beat up and moldy. But mm-hmm. uh, Mike Palmer took them home, and eventually his wife said, get those out of my house. So he gave them to me, and I took them home, and my wife said, of course, the same thing. So now they're in my office here. Uh, but they remind me of, uh, of both Mike and, and Russell Wigley when I see them. Well, par- so, parenthetically, I will say that mm-hmm. Temple University was founded by Russell Conwell, in 1884, who was a Civil War veteran and fought in your area, New Bern, the New Bern okay. campaign in North Carolina, and yep. was wounded and served very gallantly, captain of a company of the 2nd Massachusetts Heavy Artillery. He was from Springfield, Massachusetts. And an incident that happened during that action prompted him to take up the ministry and that education, and that's why he, uh, he founded Temple College and Temple University thereafter. Uh-huh. So we now, have in, in, so in your book, you, you start out pointing out that Philadelphia is one of the major cities in the world in 1860, um, which I think a lot of people are maybe not immediately aware just how major a city it was. Uh, could you tell mm-hmm. what what kind of city was it? Who lived there? What did they do? What did they make? Talk well, it was the second largest city in the United States after New York City. New York was not consolidated. The boroughs were not consolidated until 1898. And so uh, Brooklyn uh, was also a large city, but not part of New York. So -hmm. Philadelphia had consolidated the county of Philadelphia and the original city of Philadelphia, which is part of the county, consolidated in 1854. And that created this huge conglomeration of over 600,000 inhabitants in a huge uh, countywide system. Now, there are a lot of reasons for that. I won't get into all the details, but uh, it was it was necessary, and uh, therefore uh, Philadelphia, because of its size, because of its position and location as a gateway to both the north and the south, sitting kind of on the in the central part of the Atlantic coast, 
uh, and it was the fourth largest English-speaking city in the world. Hmm. And because of that, it's, it's transportation. It does have access to the sea through the Delaware River. So it was a shipping hub, railroads, major roads, canals, all crisscrossed through Pennsylvania, Maryland, and, and New Jersey. And ape, the apex was Philadelphia. So it was a major transportation hub. And, of course, because of the large population, because of the raw materials that were very readily available, coal from, for example, the coal regions, iron ore, etc., uh, led to heavy industries. We had huge shipbuilding uh, uh, establishments here, including the Philadelphia Navy Yard, which was the largest Navy Yard in the country, uh, producing ships, warships, as well as private naval yards. In fact, the one of the most important naval vessels of the Civil War Union, on the Union side, the New Ironsides, which was a mm. revelation, a modernization with the iron uh, hull, of course, uh, was produced there. Where, as also the first functional uh, submarine, the USS Alligator, was also built in Philadelphia. And, of course, heavy guns uh, uh, were here, manufactured here. Uh, the Frankfurt Arsenal, of course, was uh, a major hub for ammunition, shells, uh, caps, powder, uh, and then the quartermaster depot called uh, the the, um, uh, the the U.S. quartermaster depot uh, at Grace Ferry uh, was a major hub for uniforms, for accoutrements, for leather goods, for uh, you know any anything, any supplies that the army needed, uh, and so on. So uh, between the military establishment and the private manufacturings, manufacturers, and so on, uh, it it was an essential element in the prosecution of the war. Without Philadelphia, there is no union. Uh, they did supply uh, ammunition, weaponry, uniforms, medicines. Of course, it's a major medical hub. We had some of the finest medical schools in the world here, including the University of Pennsylvania, uh, Jefferson Medical College, and so on and so on. At one time, there were 24 military general hospitals in Philadelphia, including the two largest in the world. They were temporary that was uh, what they call Maurer General Hospital, 4,000 beds, and Satterley General Hospital in West Philadelphia, 4,000 beds, because we were close to the war front. And because of transportation, uh, the wounded and the sick could be transported fairly quickly. For example, out of Gettysburg, it's only an hour and a half uh, train ride from Gettysburg to Philadelphia. And uh, so a lot of those who could, of course, travel and, and be and survive that, you know, the journey, uh, would then be transported to one of those great hospitals. And just to give you an idea, the, uh, the death rate at Satterley was 2%. I mean, this is, this is uh, rival's modern medicine. Uh, so all of these factors, uh, the fact that we had trained physicians, nurses, medical people, uh, pharmacists, and so on, the fact that we had all the transportation, one of the hospitals was directly across from the major train station on Broad Street. It was called Citizens Volunteer Hospital. It was 600 beds, state-of-the-art, and it was funded totally by citizens' donations. Not a penny came from the federal government. We also had the refreshment saloon movement uh, down at the uh, Delaware, uh, where troops coming in from New Jersey, from the north, from uh, New York and, and uh, you know, New England, uh, on the way down would stop before they could go any further to the front. And they would be fed here. They would be treated. They would be treated kindly. They would be cheered. And all of them wrote in their memoirs and their regimental histories about the fine treatment that they received here. So the benevolence of Philadelphia is incredible. 
So that's the, uh, a few of the things. The, the hospitals uh, uh, that you yeah. write about in the book, you have illustrations of them. They really are uh, impressive. It's an incredible uh, story. Just how big they are. The uh, now You mentioned that Philadelphia is essentially a border city. Uh, it is, It's yeah. near, near right Maryland, near slave territory. And that means um, – so politically, uh, how, how did Philadelphia position itself before the war and, and – uh, as the war well, began, well, interestingly what? enough, Philadelphia was uh, demo- was uh, very much de- uh, dem- dominated by the Democrat Party, and that was because of of two factors. One, the uh, moneyed class, the blue bloods, were loyal Democrats on the one hand, and on the other hand, the poor immigrants, particularly Irish, Germans, English, who would come in and take the have to take the menial jobs, and so they were also persuaded by the Democrats to support them with the promise of honest graft, of course, jobs, mm-hmm. etc. And so you had a dominance of the Democrat Party here. Now, um, the, the city did go for Lincoln uh, in 1860, but that's because there was a split in the Dem- I'm sure You're well aware, of course, the mm-hmm. Democrats ran two candidates, and they split the vote, and Lincoln was able to kind of, uh, you know, fall in, into the cracks and he did win the city both in 1860 and 1864. Uh, and gradually, of course, during the course of the war, uh, public sentiment changed and moved over to the Republican side because, of course, the treason, uh, the fact that they were their sons and husbands and brothers and so on were fighting uh, the, the rebellion in, and suff- sacrificing their lives uh, on the battlefield. And, and this nothing, nothing angers Americans more than people who uh, who fire on the flag, you know, and so that changed public opinion tremendously when that when Fort Sumter uh, was fired upon in April of 1861. So uh, politically, it it had a lot of Democrat support early on, but that tended to fade as the war went on, and eventually, uh, it's in the post-war period, uh, it's going to be a solid Republican, as, along with many of the cities of the North and the state as well in, uh, into the Republican ticket. So uh, that, that's the situation now. Uh, Philadelphia had uh, recruited over 100,000 men. Uh, it, uh, I did the statistics on this and discovered that 68% of all eligible males in Philadelphia served in some capacity in the military during the Civil War. This is an incredible number. And of those 100,000, and I'm rounding it off, of course, 20,000 died in service. Now, that doesn't mean they were all killed on the battlefield. Of course, as you well know, uh, mm-hmm. more took, disease took more casualties than, uh, than, than actual combat. But so for all various reasons, uh, 20,000 never returned. So 20,000 Philadelphians alone. No other, and, uh, and we're, we were the only city in the north that supplied an entire brigade to the uh, Army of the Potomac, the Philadelphia Brigade, four regiments, raised and trained in Philadelphia, and of course they formed a very, very important part of the Second Corps under Hancock and stood tall against Pickett's charge and broke it and repulsed it at Gettysburg on the 3rd of July at the angle. There stood strong the Philadelphia Brigade, including well, the Irish Regiment, the 69th Pennsylvania. Mentioning Gettysburg, what what about uh, the Gettysburg, Gettysburg campaign seems to me uh, the closest to Philadelphia is threatened 
with with yeah, military action during threat. the war. Yes, Talk about fact, the, the city at that uh, time. They were, they were the panic, the city panic, the state panic for that matter, because there were no appreciable troops in the in the state to uh, prevent an invasion. All all the the first line troops, the front line troops, were with the armies, the various armies, the Army of the Potomac, the Army of the West, etc. And so uh, the, the the governor of the state, Andrew Greg Curtin, who was a very strong Union man and a friend of Lincoln's, Republican, uh, called for uh, fifty thousand emergency militia. Now they never got that many, but uh, and there's some reasons for that. I won't get into all the details. But they did get quite a few. Now, none of, none of them, or very few of them, only a very few, actually saw any combat. But they did do a lot of guard duty and, you know, cleaning up the battlefield afterwards and so on and so forth. Uh, in the city of Philadelphia, they panicked as well. And they started building fortifications, earthworks, mounted some guns, westward, pointing westward toward Gettysburg. And mm-hmm. the thing that really buoyed their spirits was they, when they found out that was a son of, of Philadelphia who was now in command of the Union Army, who had just been placed in command three days before the battle erupted, and that is George Gordon Meade, uh, our greatest war hero and a, a native Philadelphian. So uh, they were very happy about that, uh, and, and of course uh, that they, they didn't find out for a couple of days because of the you know the problem with communications and a lot of the wires were cut and so on and so forth, and he was promoted against his own will, by the way, <laughs> I might add, mm-hmm. uh, on, the, on, the, on the march, on the campaign towards, uh, towards the north and the inevitable battle that was going to follow. So uh, the Philadelphians were very elated that one of their own sons was in command at Gettysburg and really is the savior of the Union. And he was given a gold medal by the Union League. The Union League of Philadelphia, of course, is an institution in Philadelphia that was formed during the war to support the war effort and raise troops propagandized for the war and so on still exists to this day. I'm a member, believe it or not. And, Mm -hmm. um, they gave general Meade, uh, they gave, in fact, they still do give a award called the gold medal. Now it's not gold anymore, but it was at the time of Meade. Uh, Uh, the first recipient was Lincoln. Uh, general Meade was the fourth recipient. And on his medal, it states that he was the victor of the battle of Gettysburg and deliverer, deliverer of the union. And, our greatest soldier. So uh, he was very, very proud of that. And, of course, he became an honorary member of the League. Well, let me there ask many, about many other uh, generals. Who were, who, who were uh, commanders, too, as well. But uh, Admiral Dahlgren, just to give you an example, uh, mm-hmm. many others. Well, you, uh, in your book, you mentioned uh, uh, listing generals, uh, certainly Meade, and I want to get back uh, in, in our third section and ask you more about him. But just for now, we have a few minutes before the next break. Uh, you certainly. also mentioned George McClellan. Um, how how does the city one. claim <laughs> McClellan? Pardon me? Uh, how how does the city claim a relationship to George McClellan? Well, McClellan uh, was, was the son of a very, very prominent Philadelphian uh, his, his father, George McClellan, who was the mm-hmm. president of Jefferson Medical College and a very eminent physician. Several of his brothers were also physicians and served in the Union Army as surgeons. Uh, he went to West Point. He, he attended the University of Pennsylvania first at the age of 13, <laughs> and he entered West wow. Point at 15. Uh, that was not uncommon in those days, by the way, and uh, eventually finished uh, second in his class, the class of 1846, the famous class of 1846, of course, Stonewall Jackson and so on. Uh, and he was uh, 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 taken into the Corps of Engineers, which was 
the elite core of the army. It still, still remains so to this day. Uh, and he uh, went to Mexico, and of course, uh, he did some service after the war, but then re- he resigned in the 1850s and went into railroad construction. And at the time the war broke out, he was working in railroads. He was the president of a railroad, I believe the Illinois Railroad or something like that. It could be, could be uh, uh, another name. Uh, and of course, he, he had a very, he was um, named the commander of all Ohio troops very early in the war. And he had a couple of successes in Western Virginia at the time. And, and the, you, the country was desperate for a, a commander who had achieved some victories. And so he was named general-in-chief to replace Winfield Scott. This is why he got involved. Now, uh, General Meade, uh, he was, General Meade was much older than McClellan, but he admired mm-hmm. him because of his engineering prowess, number one. And number two, his ability to, um, uh, to raise, uh, to instill discipline in the army and give it esprit de corps and so on in his organizational skills. But once McClellan hit the field, uh, he showed himself to be very overly cautious and indecisive. And so Meade did criticize him in his letters home to his wife. Uh, and he well, realized that he was flawed. He was probably should have been a staff officer or remained a staff officer and not gone into the field. We'll come back and talk a little bit more about Meade uh, with our guest tonight, uh, Andy Wosky, who has portrayed General Meade. We'll find out more about that and about Philadelphia in the Civil War. When we come back after a short break, I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Andy Wosky, author of Philadelphia and the Civil War, Arsenal of the Union. And Andy, what I 
for several people recommended uh, your name to me to to talk with on the show, and uh, among them, they universally pointed out uh, your general Mead presentation. Uh, yeah. you, we talked mm-hmm. earlier that you've, you've done first-person presentation of a Union soldier from the ranks, uh, mm-hmm. but I understand you also do the same with, with George Gordon Mead. I do. Uh, in fact, uh, the presentation of a soldier in the ranks generated my interest in portraying General Meade. And because uh, basically what, what happened was I, I began a very, very intense study of particularly Gettysburg because of the Pennsylvania connection. Mm-hmm. And uh, finally came to realize that uh, we know a lot about the Confederate losing commander, Robert E. Lee. Mm-hmm. We don't, didn't know much about the winning, victorious Union commander who saved the Union, arguably, at Gettysburg, George Gordon Meade. And when I started to look into his life, I was amazed. I couldn't believe. First of all, he's a Philadelphian. Now, he was born in Spain, but of Philadelphia parentage. And he only spent a year in, in Cadiz in Spain and when he returned home with his mother in 1816. Uh, mm-hmm. So he grew up and was raised in, and, and educated in Philadelphia. And that's where his roots are. And he loved the city. And, he's a, and then I, I wonder where he's buried. And it turns out that he's buried in Philadelphia in Laurel Hill Cemetery, the second oldest Victorian garden cemetery in the nation, one of the most lovely it's a national historic landmark. I started hanging around there because of the thousands of veterans who were buried there, war heroes. Oh, I could have gone down the list. And so um, the, the people at the cemetery said, well, we're hanging around here so much. Why don't you join our uh, board? And so I joined the board of Laurel Hill and became the historian. I've written a book about Laurel Hill. I do tours there, and I'm, I'm the expert on the military expert uh, for, for Laurel Hill. So uh, General Meade, of course, has a very humble stone there. And uh, I thought, you know, if I had success uh, portraying a Union soldier uh, and getting across the message, and students were so enthused and they, they incredibly interested, maybe I could do that with General Meade, because not a lot of people know about him, and if they do know about him, it's always usually in a negative vein. And so I did a two-year, very thorough study of all his writings secondary sources, speaking to members of the family, reading everything I could, and before I would take on the role of me, I wanted to know, make sure that I knew everything because there's always someone out there in the audience who's going to ask a question and stump, try to stump you, which they that's have. Right. Oh, that's only happened once in my 30-year career of portraying me. I started in eight, 1985, uh, and it was a question about engineering. He was a brilliant engineer uh, in the Coastal Survey, and what people don't know is that he um, is probably the most famous builder of lighthouses in the country, in history. He built 10 lighthouses, three in New Jersey and seven in southern Florida. And he was also a, a bound, did boundary, numerous boundary surveys, hydrologic studies of, uh, of the rivers. And he drew um, the boundary between Maine and Canada in 1842 in the Aroostook Valley. And he did, uh, he worked for six years on the great geodetic survey of the Great Lakes. And he himself completed the survey of two of the lakes, with, along with his staff, of course, uh, Huron and Superior. So everything that we know about Lakes Huron and Superior, the depths, the chart, the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the, the um, you know, uh, tides and so on, all of that, we can thank General Meade. And, of course, prior to the war, uh, he was working as a lieutenant and then later a captain in the 
Corps of Engineers, the Topographical Corps of Engineers with the Coastal Survey. So he had his huge career. In fact, he himself wrote that if he would ever be remembered in history, it would be for his engineering work. And of course, in the Mexican War, he served on the staff of General Scott as an engineer, particularly at the Siege of Veracruz, where he worked with none other than Robert E. Lee. They were very, very close friends and both engineers. So, um, the uh, General Mead Society is mentioned in your book. Uh, I, I am the founder that. and president. We founded uh-huh. in 1996 because uh, in 1990, I started a ceremony at General Meade's grave at his birthday. He was born on December 31st. What a good day to be born, New Year's Eve. <laughs> uh-huh. And so his favorite drink was champagne. So it was a perfect to go together. So every... Since 1990, every December 31st at 12 noon, we started to meet and hold a ceremony, wreath layings, speeches, volleys, honor volleys, champagne toasts, and now it's our 26th year. We were going to, we're going to do it again. This year is the Sunday, December 31st, 18, uh, I'm sorry, 19, 2017 at Laurel <laughs> Hill Cemetery, 12 noon, free and open to the public, and we have... Uh, Troops, uh, reenacting troops, uh, firing volleys, of course. We have wreath layings. Uh, we sing songs. I mean, depending on the weather, of course. Uh, and the weather's never daunted us, by the way. And then, of course, we have, we culminate with champagne toasts, which the General Meat Society provides to all visitors. If the weather is nice, we've had as many as 400 people show up. So uh, this is our signature event, and it was at one of these events that we decided to formalize it by founding a society, and that was in 1996. Wow. So um, if, if one is visiting Philadelphia, say it's not New Year's Eve and, and the General Mead Society is not in session, uh, what, are, what Civil War sites are there today? What would you recommend the visitor go to see? Well, obviously I would recommend Laurel Hill because mm-hmm. uh, not only is General Meade there, but we have 42 Civil War-era generals including John C. Pemberton, who surrendered Vicksburg to Grant on the day after the Battle of Gettysburg, July 4th, 1863. Interesting. We have 10 admirals, seven Medal of Honor recipients, and literally thousands of veterans of the Civil War, as well as other wars, too. So it's very, very famous. That would be one. Number two, I would recommend the Union League. Now, uh, the Union League is a closed private club, but it does have a museum which is open to the to the the public at certain times for visits, free of charge. Mm-hmm. And they can also do research there. They have a huge archive, probably one of the largest archives of uh, primary source material on the Civil War, both from their own collections and from the Mollusk Collection, the Military Order of the Loyal Legion, used to have a, a museum in Philadelphia called the War Library in Pine Street. I don't know if you ever knew that. Uh, that closed, and all the records, books, uh, photographs, papers, in other words, the paper goods, all came to the Union League's archives. That is open and available to the public. And then uh, there's the GAR Civil War Museum, the only all-Civil War museum in the city. And, of course, I'm uh, the historian there and uh, on the board of directors. And we have the collections of the GAR, the Grand Army of the Republic posts of Philadelphia there, and, of course, other items as well. And that is uh, manned and staffed by volunteers, so we're only open one day a week, and that is Tuesdays, noon to four. And then every first Sunday, we have a 
historical program of some sort where a speaker comes in. In fact, this coming Sunday is our open house, and we have Scott Mingus, who's an excellent historian, oh, yeah. uh, Philadelphia historian. Do you know him? Scott yes, Mingus has uh, written yes. a number of books on the Civil War. He's going to speak mm-hmm. uh, on the uh, burning of the Wrightsville Bridge, how, how it changed the whole course of the, the Gettysburg Campaign. So now, the GAR uh, that's Museum another site. Has, uh, has Meade's horse, I believe. We do. Uh, General Meade's war, noble war horse, Old Baldy, is alive mm-hmm. and well, or maybe not alive, but is well. <laughs> and his ha- his head is uh, was uh, prepared with taxidermy, I guess you could say, and placed mm-hmm. on a plaque and hung in the General Meade post, post number one of the GAR in their hall, very, very uh, uh, solemnly. For many, many years, it was the glory of their post and of all the various veterans who would come to Philadelphia. There were three uh, national encampments or reunions in, of the Grand Army in, Phil- in Philadelphia over the years. And, of course, uh, they gloried in uh, General Meade's warhorse, Old Baldy. So we do have that on display in the General Meade room. We have an entire mm-hmm. chamber to- dedicated to General Meade where we have his hat that was shot off his head at the Battle of Fredericksburg. We have pieces of his hair made into cufflinks, uh, his prayer book, uh, his, uh, a copy of his gold medal given to him by the Union League, and so on and so on, on and on and on. So, yes. So, so it sounds like there's, there's a lot of Civil War... Uh, oh, my God, yes. We have, uh, and then, of course, we have monuments, uh, many, many, many monuments uh, dedicated to, to Civil War history and Civil War veterans, including... Uh, Equestrian monuments, including an equestrian monument of General Meade in Fairmont Park, uh, General uh, Reynolds at City Hall, General McClellan at City Hall, uh, and then the Philadelphia City Civil War Memorial, which is also in Fairmont Park, not too far from General Meade's uh, equestrian monument. So, uh, and, there, and, and there are others, too numerous to mention. So uh, I've been doing, uh, for roundtables and other groups, tours uh, Philadelphia in the Civil War tours over the years, and uh, we always have a great time, and I take them all around uh, to the various monuments, the institutions, the uh, buildings that still survive, the site of the Navy Yard, for example, the the uh, Frankfurt Arsenal is still there. It's no longer an arsenal, but it, the buildings are still there. It's a it's a it's now a business park, as well as uh, the uh, quartermaster depot at Spring Garden. It's now it's still there. Buildings are still there, but it's a it's a electric generating plant <laughs> now. Now, let me ask you a question. We just have a few minutes left uh, about the book itself here, uh, Philadelphia and the Civil War. It, yes, it is published by History Press, and I've noticed yes. this with other History Press build uh, books that the footnotes you 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 note your sources like a historian does. Uh, they're consecutive throughout the book rather than starting over in each chapter. So uh, we end up with footnote uh, 375 by the time we're done. Yeah, I know. I know. That's, that's other the way authors have told uh, me that they wanted to do it. It's a mass production. Uh, I wanted to do – it's not a scholarly uh, treatise. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's mass production for the, for the public market. It's mm-hmm. a paperback, and it, it's not very expensive. I think you can buy the book for $15. Uh, and that's what I wanted. I wanted to kind of do a tour guide. And mm-hmm. Ed Bars, by the way, uh, one of the great historians sure. of the Civil War, uh, of World War II veteran himself, uh, uh, still survives and live, live and well and kicking. 
Uh, he wrote the, I, we're good friends, he wrote the foreword for me, and mm-hmm. does mention that it, it could be used as a good tour guide, you know, because I try to find the sites where all these things happened, where there were, the training camps were located, where the hospitals were located, and I, I do provide the addresses and so on on that. But, uh, yeah, I did, uh, I, I, that was the way they suggested to do it, and so that's the way I did it. That, that seems to be one of the things that they do with other books and other authors have, have commented on that as well. Well, it's a very you know, interesting and useful book. It, it has information about Philadelphia one would not have suspected. Uh, talks about the famous units raised there, some of which uh, you and I just talked about. Uh, mm-hmm. Others, you know, the, the Bucktails, the Pennsylvania Reserves, uh, one right. could go on at great length. Um so, are you thinking of any other uh, writing projects, Civil War related? Oh or, yeah, well, uh, I've, I've actually done four books. It's uh, at my, my latest one, and I am working on a regimental history of the Washington Brigade. And the Washington Brigade is very little known, but uh, you've heard of the uh, the Baltimore Riot, April nineteenth, eighteen sixty one. The Massachusetts troops passing through Baltimore. But what mm-hmm. you don't know is that there were more Pennsylvania troops on that train than Massachusetts troops. And those troops were the Washington Brigade. Uh, two brigades, uh, one brigade composed of uh, English-speaking uh, volunteers, the other one of German uh, immigrants, so there's German-American mm. brigade, German-American regiment. And uh, they remained on the train during the riot, but the rioters came onto the train, and there were actually fisticuffs and fighting and... One of the men uh, from the German group, uh, George Leisenring, was stabbed. Uh, in fact, a number of them were stabbed and injured, but one, he was so severely stabbed, he was brought back to Philadelphia, and he was taken to the nearest hospital, which is Pennsylvania Hospital, and he died of his wounds just two days later, being the first man killed in the Civil War, that gave his life in service in hmm. the Civil War from Pennsylvania, and the fifth to die in service for the Union Army. And uh, we were, I located his grave. Uh, we marked it. We did ceremonies there. He has a stone uh, because he was originally in a, a cemetery that was removed to the suburbs. It's a long story, but uh, I'm writing. Now, when they came back, they separated. They really didn't like one another very much, being from different cultural circles. And so they separated into two different regiments. And in fact, they were two of the first regiments, three years regiments, uh, uh, mustered out of Philadelphia, and that was the 26th Pennsylvania and the 27th Pennsylvania Regiments. The 26th was the American English-speaking regiment, and the 27th was the German German American uh, regiment that served with the 11th Corps uh, in the German division. So well, I'm that, going to. It sounds I'm, like I'm a, almost a about ninety percent done with that. So it's it's going to be the Washington Brigade, the whole incident down in Washington, and then how they came back and uh, turned into and generated these two other regiments, and then their overview history and then um, uh, an accounting of where all the veterans are buried and what, you know, what they did, et cetera, et cetera. So well, I'm we'll working on that. To that, that should book, be done. Which will be, look forward to that very much. Uh, in the yes. meantime, well, thank readers, you you've, yes. you've got uh, Philadelphia and the Civil War, Arsenal of the Union, by our guest tonight, Anthony Wosky. Andy, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Oh, by the way, I know Terry Alford very, very well, so say hello to him. He knows me. And, I'll do uh, that. He, I've helped him a little bit with the research on his book on John uh, Wilkes Booth. I'll certainly do that. Who had and, contact and in I, Philadelphia, I pre- by the way. <laughs> I, I appreciate your, your 
uh, multiplicity of, of facts and information <laughs> on the show tonight. It has been a pleasure. We've got to go. We're out of time. Listeners, well, as always, very much. thank, thank you, you for, for listening thank you. to Civil Good War luck. Talk Radio. Thank you. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.